Black Doctors Podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. This week, we are learning from Dr. Jasmine Smith. She is pediatric hematology oncology, currently training in Tennessee. And she's gonna <laughs> she's gonna join us and she's gonna share her incredible past, her story about how she came to this fellowship, what led her into this field of medicine. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So I found you, came across you on Instagram because you have quite the online presence. You are one of those people that are so passionate about something, especially outside of medicine. Dance. You're always dancing. So what what what, what makes you dance? I don't know. I've, I've just always been a dancing a dancing person. I was a dancing kid, and then it just kind of carried carried it with me through high school um, when I joined my first dance team, and then danced on a couple of teams in college. And now I just because I don't really have time to be on teams, I just dance for fun. <laughs> yes, yeah, and you you see her videos on on Instagram. We'll drop the link in the show notes. But we're here. We'll talk. We love. I love talking about passions because everybody know. Well, I'm not going to assume everybody knows. Most people, if they follow a show, follow me, know that I love music. That's my passion, and medicine is kind of something that I get to practice. But we want to learn about you, Jasmine, and kind of your pathway into medicine. So when did it first start? Yeah, so I'd say middle school was when I first told myself I was going to be a doctor. And it there wasn't anything like super special, I think, that that happened for me to decide that. I think without getting like <laughs> too like in the in the weeds, I my I started my menstrual very early, nine, which is like the lower end of normal almost for, for starting, but it was very difficult like dealing with that as a, a fourth grader because most of my friends didn't start having their periods until like middle school. And so I decided I wanted to be that I wanted to be a gynecologist, no BGYN at that point, because huh. I wanted to take care of other girls who maybe struggled as well with um, their menstruals or just having it early and, you know, being that one girl that's already there while everyone else um, is still kind of waiting to, to reach that. So that was my initial pull to becoming a doctor that changed very drastically over the course as I got closer to actually going to medical school. I, when I was in college, my younger brother was 14 at the time was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a type of bone hmm. tumor. And so once I started medical school, my first year, I signed up for this program. I applied for this program and thankfully was accepted to do a six week rotation in pediatric oncology, where I basically just shadowed a pediatric oncologist for the summer. And that was my way of trying to figure out if I actually would like this and if I could actually handle it, knowing that I have such a personal connection. And it it felt for the first time that I really understood why I wanted to be a doctor and it just made, it made sense. And though it was like very close and personal for me, and I felt that with every patient that I saw with that doctor, it felt like the, it made more sense to me why why I decided to go down this path. And so since then, I've been very focused on pediatric oncology and nothing um, has changed my mind since then. Wow. And that was doing during medical school, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. First okay. year medical school. And looking at your pathway, because you kind of bounced around, you said your family's from South Carolina, but you grew mm-hmm. up an army brat. So where all did you grow up? Yeah. So nowhere exciting. I grew up, <laughs> <laughs> I was born in Duluth, Georgia. Um, 
And then we lived there for a couple of years. And then, so I, so I lied. We did live in South, we did live in Georgetown for like one year. I went to kindergarten. I was in kindergarten there. And then we moved to Arkansas, North Little Rock, which probably my least favorite location ever. And I was there until fifth or sixth grade, fifth grade. And then sixth grade, I lived in Fayetteville, North Carolina, another very exciting city. And so I was there from sixth until eighth grade. And then after that, we moved to Atlanta. Well, McDonough, Georgia. So like 30 Mm -hmm. minutes south of Atlanta. And luckily I was able to stay there for all four years of high school. My mom was able to negotiate that we not move in, in in the middle of me being in high school. And so I finished high school there and I actually stayed in Atlanta to go to Spelman for college. And then we'll talk about my other locations later. That was <laughs> kind of where I grew up. Nowhere, nowhere fun. I'm glad I'm not the only military brat that got the short end of that stick because yeah. my dad's in the Navy. We just moved up and down the East Coast. So nowhere, <laughs> nowhere fun. Nothing overseas, no Germany, no Japan, just the East Coast. Yeah. So my mom went to Germany, but it was before I was even a thought. It was right after she finished ROTC. So, <laughs> so when you went to Spelman, did you know that you, you knew at that time you wanted to go into medicine? Yes. And then, or go ahead, what did you study? What was your kind of experience? Yeah, so I, I was a biology major, pre-med. I Had I known at the time that I didn't have to be a science major, I probably would have majored in math, the minor in Spanish. And so I, I was a biology major. I didn't really like it, but I felt like that's what I needed to do in order to go to medical school. I didn't know any doctors at all. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about medical school, <laughs> honestly. But through Spelman, I was able to actually meet and find like Black women who were physicians who could serve as mentors for me. And so I think just being at Spelman in general opened up a lot of doors for me and opened my mind to a lot of possibilities. But yeah, I, I didn't know what I was doing. But there's a, an actual program, a health careers program at Spelman that kind of directs you and kind of tells you everything that you need to do. So I just did what they told me to do. Awesome. So you had a good support network that you fell yeah. into at least. Absolutely. So you, and what were you, were you engaged in any organizations or clubs while you were at Spelman? Yeah, actually. So I, after my first year, my mom, she basically gave me an ultimatum because Spelman is very expensive. And I could have gone to a public school in Georgia for free with the Hope Scholarship and my GPA, but I didn't want to leave Spelman. So she said, either you join the military and make them pay for your school or you're going to a public school because I'm not paying for it anymore. So I'm crazy, right? So I was like, fine, I'll join the military. So I joined the army after my freshman year. And so actually my the fall of my sophomore year, I was gone. I did basic training and AIT or advanced individual training. I did it combined. So I didn't have to like go back and forth in Missouri. It's terrible. Okay. In Missouri. So I was gone from July to December of my fall of my sophomore year. And then I came back in January and joined ROTC. So the only reason I did that was so that when I joined ROTC, I would be like as a sophomore instead of it being like my first year of ROTC. So I came back in January, joined ROTC. That took up, sucked up a lot of time out of my life during college. So I honestly wasn't able to really be in any other organizations with doing that and being pre-med. I did volunteer quite a bit, just like tutoring, like locally for like local high schools. But that was kind of the the extent of my like involvement outside of ROTC and being pre-med. Oh, nice. So how, so you still have a service commitment? No, thankfully. So I, I, when I commissioned after I graduated, I 
was in the reserves with the medical services corps. So it wasn't the medical corps because I wasn't a doctor yet. And so I did, I was, so I was basically drilling or I had one week in a month where I'd have to go and do training. And I did that throughout medical school. And then I stopped. So I was able to actually go into what they call like the IRR when I went to residency training. So I was like, I'm not going to be able to drill when I go to residency. And so I kind of just did like, there were options to do like online stuff to kind of like get credits while you were in. And so I, throughout college, sorry, I skipped that part. So throughout college, I was drilling because I had come back from basic training in AIT. Another plot twist. My AIT training was actually for military police. Don't ask me why. (laughs) Wait, what? Um, Is that on purpose? No. Well, yeah, <laughs> it was on purpose, but it was because that was the only, or at least that's what the recruiter told me. Who knows if it was true, but I was asking, cause I told them like, I can only miss a semester. Like I want July to December. And that was the only job that they said I could go and do to fit that time frame. So I was like, fine, just sign me up for military police. Oh my God. But so through college, I was drilling with the military police. Me. And then med school is when I switched over to medical services after I was commissioned. But So yeah, I drilled throughout that time from sophomore year to college up until my last year of med school. And then I was just kind of doing IRR stuff until then. Cool, girl. I'm surprised they let you out. You said just sign me up. (laughs) Yeah, I was very, I was very, I didn't think a lot. I just kind of did things. Yeah, no, I had some uh, colleagues at the Navy that did ROTC and then went to medical school and residency. So the Navy got them for like, like they're still paying off their ROTC commitment. So some people yeah. get jammed up. Yeah. Luckily I, I'm, I'm done. I got out, mm. I was discharged, honorably discharged. That's right. So. <laughs> well, thank you for your service. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so as you went to uh residency, like or, at what point did you decide to go into pediatrics or, or you said you kind of always wanted to work? Cause you were talking about obstetrics for a little bit. So yeah. where did the switch come? Yeah. So I, obstetrics was like my middle school thought up until like I actually, up until my brother got diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So I thought about pediatric oncology at that point, but then I didn't really like decide that that's what I wanted to do until um, my first year of medical school. And so I've been on that path since then. So pediatrics just kind of came as the package because I knew specifically that I wanted pediatric oncology. And so going into like I just knew in third year confirmed that for me because I absolutely hated my OBGYN rotation. So that would have that would have sucked if I was still trying to do OBGYN. But yeah, so now I've been pedi- peds oncology since first year of medical school. So you are the first oncologist, first pediatric oncologist that I've had on the show. So would you mind telling us about the specialty? Tell us about the field, some of the rotations you go through as a fellow. Sure. So it's the best specialty ever as patients. It's, I, I think it's, I've, I've found that most people that go into pediatric oncology have some sort of story, some sort of connection, some sort of reason why they're in the field. For me personally, my brother, a couple of my co-fellows themselves had, had cancer as children. And mm-hmm. so that, that's, that was their drive. So I, I found that to be something very special and unique, I think, to peds oncology is that I feel like in oncology in general, usually there's, there's some sort of connection. It's, a three-year fellowship. So you do your three years of pediatrics residency, and then the match is now in the third year of, of residency. So you match your last year into a fellowship program. And so I I chose St. Jude, and thankfully they chose me too in the match <laughs> because 
it's it's the only hospital in the world that's committed strictly to pediatric oncology. And so I felt like that was a very unique training opportunity. And their mission is just very strong and very, very much just focused on pediatric oncology. So I, I wanted that experience for training. And it's just a hospital that everyone knows and everyone respects. And I thought it would be a great place to train. The first year of fellowship is very heavy, heavily clinical. It's terrible. I had a horrible time. Not even <laughs> um, I thought about quitting multiple times. Oh, um, no. Especially after I passed Pete's boards. I was like, well, now I could go work as a general pediatric doc and be just fine. But it's very hard. Most places that are, or at least large PT monk fellowship programs, the services are split up. So you have the leukemia lymphoma service, you have BMT, you have hematology, and then you have a solid tumor slash neuro-oncology service. And so throughout your first year, you rotate twice through each of those services. And then you have one block that's dedicated to outpatient time, which is spent for us in the hematology and the neuro-oncology clinics. And so you, you get a pretty, pretty in-depth um, exposure to a lot of different disease processes, and it's it's hard rotating between each service just because everything's very different. The protocols are very different. And so it's it's a lot. And you're working almost every day. <laughs> like there's a very rarely time that you have off during the first year. So it's it's very draining, but rewarding. You learn you learn a ton just by being there. One thing that's special about St. Jude, and I think I don't think there's any other program um, in the country that is set up this way, but we don't have like residents rotate through our services, but they're not running the service. Like how at most hospitals, like there would be residents that would be kind of managing the patients with the fellow kind of overseeing and then the attending. Here we have APPs or advanced practice providers. So nurse practitioners or PAs are primarily running the services. And so they, you know, we come in and they know much more than we do because this is what they do every day. And they're specific to the services too. So your leukemia APPs, you have hematology APPs. So they, they in a, in a sense, kind of are in the role of, of residents of what we would see at any other hospital as far as how the services are run. But it's very different because, again, they're very, they're very skilled, they're very knowledgeable and experienced because they've been doing it longer than us. And so it's, I just have found that it's, very, it's a very different dynamic with trying to learn and trying to be the attending and trying to lead while also realizing that the people you're leading know more than you at this point. But I think it's been beneficial from that standpoint as well, because it does allow us as fellows to focus more on learning because we know the teams. To, so it is, I think that's a very different dynamic than what you are used to with kind of the fellow resident med student structure. Hmm. So that's first year. Horrible, but you learn a lot. <laughs> second and third year, I'm in my second year right now, is um, 80% reasonable. Oh, God. Yeah. So it's still, honestly, at this point in second year, it's still kind of more clinical than I probably should be having. I still have my continuity clinic once a week. So every Tuesday I have clinic where I see my primary patients and the rest of the time I'm in the lab. It Depending on what you're doing for research, it could be a little bit more chill than first year. It could be just as busy as first year. I found that it's definitely better, but I'm I'm still busy, but in a different way. But that's, and I don't, other Pete's fellowships are, do require research time as well. But I think the time, how they divide it up is different. I think it's kind of spread out throughout all of the three years. Whereas for us, we have one long, horrible clinical year, and then we have two years of research. And so I'm in the middle of my, I'm in the second half of my second year. 
doing research. So I actually had clinic today. So Tuesdays are my clinic days. So I saw some of my primary patients. You're, you have a continuity clinic, you said, through fellowship. Yep, throughout the whole three years. During the first year is your opportunity. That's the time when you're supposed to be collecting all of your patients. And then usually during the second and the third year, you don't pick up any new patients unless you want to, but you try to focus more on research and clinical duties can get pretty hefty if you keep picking up new patients. Gotcha. Like how long are you with that patient panel? If you pick them up as a first year fellow, do you typically have the same patients for three years or do they kind of graduate for out of oncology care? Yeah, so good question. So the leukemia patients, the patients with leukemia, their treatment is about two and a half years. So we usually keep them throughout the whole fellowship program. Some of them do unfortunately relapse or have just like recurrent disease. And so it ends up being a much more difficult process throughout the three years. But the majority of leukemia patients, thankfully, do really well. And so you end up just really building these really good long-term relationships with the families. You become their general pediatrician in a sense. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. But that leads into the next question. What do you do as a pediatric hematologist oncologist? Yeah. So it's, it's funny because it's actually two subspecialties combined into one. In adult medicine, you're either a hematologist or an oncologist. Pediatrics, the fellowship program is combined. So you learn all of it. Essentially, the pediatric patient population is smaller in general compared to the adults. So I think that's why they end up combining them both. But as a hematologist, the hematology side, we primarily take care of patients who have blood disorders. So sickle cell, hemophilia, different bleeding disorders, clotting disorders, anything that has to do with the blood that isn't cancer is hematology. Uh, And oncology is the cancer side of what we do. And so we see patients who have blood malignancies like leukemia, patients who have lymphoma, solid tumors, kidney tumors, brain tumors, all of that on the oncology side. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of material to learn both of those subspecialties during training. But ultimately, some people do general pediatric hematology oncology where they see everything after training, but quite a few people also either pick hematology or oncology as the field that they really want to focus on. And even within each of those fields, there are subspecialties of of people focusing on just specific disease processes. So there's a lot of opportunity in the field to kind of find your niche or what you are actually passionate about because there's just a lot of material. But some people like it all and they enjoy seeing all of it and maintaining that knowledge. So sometimes, you know, either you know a lot about you know a lot about one thing or you know a little bit about kind of everything but as i mentioned before i'm i'm interested in being very subspecialized within oncology into solid tumors and then more specifically osteosarcoma so osteosarcoma is a, is a bone tumor there are it's very rare sarcomas in general are very rare but osteosarcoma um is is a very rare tumor and so that's the type of cancer that my brother had. And so it usually presents in adolescence, so usually a teenager's young adult age as well. And it's most commonly presents in the femur, but you can also mm-hmm. have it presenting in the tibia as well. So the legs around the knee is usually where it will present, but it can present in other bones as well. So that that is my primary interest and that's what I'm focused on in the lab. I chose a basic, a more basic translational science research experience just because I've never done it before. And I 
feel like it would be easier to get into clinical research later if I if I wanted to, but that having the experience in the lab was something I should take advantage of in fellowship while people are patient and want to teach me things. And so I was able to luckily find a PI who was working specifically on osteosarcoma, which seems like it should be easy to do at St. Jude because everyone is very like subspecialized um, and experts in all of these different fields. But I, there was only one lab that I found that was specifically just osteo and not wow. you know, kind of other solid tumors um, because I'm very selfish and I only want to focus on osteosarcoma. <laughs> and she happened to be a surgeon, which I did not expect. She's one of the surgeons at St. Jude, the only female surgeon at St. Jude. She's absolutely amazing, but she also has an interest in osteosarcoma and her interest just stems from patients that have touched her, that still touch her from throughout her training. And so what we're focusing on is CAR T cell therapy. And I can explain that further as well for everyone too. But basically for for leukemias, we've found that this has worked the best. And so what we basically do is we take the patient's own T cells and we trying to figure out how to explain it without medical terms, because that's how I best learned it initially. But you, you just take the patient's own T cells and you make them, you kind of change the structure of, of the T cell so that it recognizes the cancer or recognizes, yeah, that's the specific tumor cell. And then you infuse it back into the patient and the cells ideally should go and attack and kill the cancer cells. It's a lot easier for leukemia because their cancer cells are in their blood. For patients who have solid tumors, it is much more difficult, one, to get the T-cells to find the solid tumors because a lot of the solid tumors just don't have have a common target, whereas leukemia cells, they all pretty much have the same target. Tumor cells are very heterogeneous, or solid tumor cells, I'm sorry, usually very heterogeneous, so there's not just one common thing you can target to say you're going to get to the tumor cell. So one, it's hard to get the cells there. Two, if we can get it there, it's hard to get it inside sometimes because these these solid tumors are just so, it's hard. The barrier to actually get into the tumor is really hard. So there's CAR T cell for leukemia. It's great. Solid tumors are trying to make it work because it would be fabulous if we could and not have to do find like other chemotherapies or other things that are, are more toxic to the patients. And so we're working on CAR T cell therapy for osteosarcoma, which has been very rewarding. I feel wonderful every day knowing that what I'm focusing on every day is literally impacting or trying to impact new therapies or new treatments for osteosarcoma patients. So it's it's been a learning curve because I didn't know anything about the lab before I joined, but that's what I'm working on. That's fantastic. I feel so much smarter <laughs> after the last like three to five minutes. <laughs> I tried. I'm trying my best. And, and you've spoken multiple times about your desire to specialize specifically on osteosarcoma. I know you mentioned your brother had this, this disease. Can you talk about kind of what that meant to you and how that helped guide you into this field? Sure. So his, his diagnosis shook all of us, came out of nowhere, nothing that we would ever expect to happen. And so when he initially was diagnosed... That's when I started thinking about it, but it wasn't like solidified in my mind that that was something that I wanted to do while I was in medical school. So he was diagnosed in 2010 when I was in college. And then How old was in 2016, he? he was 14. He was 14 okay. when he was diagnosed, which is a very common age for patients to get diagnosed with osteosarcoma. And it presented like 
like it normally does, growing pains. They, you know, a patient, a teenage patient that's having kind of leg pain seems like it could be growing pains because it is that time in puberty when they're growing taller. And so it sometimes can go undiagnosed for a few months because again, cancer in children is very rare. So that's usually not the first thing that you jump to check when a child is saying that they're having leg pain. And so that's how he was diagnosed. It wasn't, he wasn't having a lot of symptoms. It was just very vague knee pain. And so he got the initial therapy and did fine and was disease-free for about a year, at least disease-free from what we could detect on imaging and the tests that we have available. But about a year after he finished therapy is when he had metastases or he had spread of the cancer from his bone to his lungs, Mm. which is the primary site that um, uh, osteosarcoma will go. If it's going to metastasize, it will go to the lungs. And so after it went to the lungs, there's really not good standard of care for metastatic osteosarcoma. And so from there, it was a lot of trials and, you know, just trying things and seeing if something would work, if something would stick. He had multiple surgeries of his lung to just kind of take out what they could take out of the of the, the tumors that were forming in his lungs to the point where they almost, they offered to like just remove that one lung because the, that's where the disease kept showing up. But at that point, my brother's getting older. He crossed, you know, 18 and, you know, was able to consent for things for himself. So that's another unique aspect of this patient population in that age group is that they sometimes cross that that threshold and it's a little different for parents to kind of allow their child who's now yeah. an adult to make their own decisions. And so he started to direct a lot of things he didn't want to do. Um, he grew tired of it, um, understandably. And so in 2016, he went on to hospice and he passed away. And this was my third year of medical school. Um, and so he died at home um, peacefully with us, which is how, how he wanted to do it. And so at that moment, I, I almost I had a split second where I was like, well, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. What's the point? Like, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm so what sorry is the point? for your like, Why would I do this? Yeah. No, thank you. But then after after I got through kind of that quick anger, I realized that this I could not see myself doing anything else. And I don't think I would be happy doing anything else, no matter how hard it is. But so that's my that's my constant pull every day is is him and remembering him and doing what I can to make sure that he you know didn't die in vain and that I do all that I can to make it better for for patients just like him. And how was that for you, if you don't mind my asking? Because you were in medical school learning these things, and in the beginning we learn about the Jack two mutations and and those other things that have long since mm-hmm. left my memory. But you're learning this and then you're taking care of your brother. Then there's family dynamics. You mentioned a lot of healthcare professionals in the family. So you're probably yeah. interpreting a lot of information. How was how were you able to cope? Yeah, I'm getting tearful only because one of my patients in clinic is progressing. But I honestly it was hard for me because I didn't feel smart at that time. Like I didn't I still didn't know much about osteosarcoma. Like you said, I was still learning. So looking back on things now, and I try not to torture myself with it, but like looking back at his, you know, all of his records and things now, it makes them so much more sense to me. And I, I wish I could have been more of a resource then that I was, I was just in training myself. I wasn't even a doctor yet, but I had a lot of regrets and I felt like I should have stayed out of, like I should have taken a leave of absence that semester. I should have been home. So I, I, I beat myself up a lot and I still do for feeling like I missed out on a lot of time because I've I stayed in school, even though that's what he wanted me to do. But 
ultimately I, I felt very helpless, even though I was this person that was supposed to maybe know more. So I, it was actually hard because I wasn't, I wasn't able to interpret much. And his, his pediatric oncologist was amazing. And she was another part of the reason why I was able to, to stay in school and focus as much as I, I could throughout the whole process. But yeah, I, did, I didn't actually feel helpful. I felt very helpless and uh, felt like I was being selfish by, by staying in school. But yeah, ultimately, I'm sure I you were a fantastic source of support to your family and, and to your brother, just being there in the capacity you're able to and, and explaining stuff. I wonder, you know, because as medical students, residents throughout the process, our families' lives, our lives continue to keep going. So I think back to when I was a third year medical student or fourth year, kind of in that phase, I was interviewing. That's when my grandma first got sick, had her first stroke. And I think I was able to see her for a little bit. And then I was on an away rotation way out in California when she had her second stroke and just catastrophic um, damage. I remember the, the first time she had her stroke, I was in the ICU at Howard actually staring at a, a patient who's about the same age as my grandmother who had a stroke. And that's when my mom had called me and, and talked with the first stroke. And then she, you know, got better, went home. And I was, you know, several months down the road at an away rotation when she had her second stroke and talking to family. I was like, man, you know, this is, she's not doing well. And I was kind of in that same situation. I was like, do I leave this away rotation, which we all know, away rotations, you got to be there hundred percent Yeah, and didn't have the money to fly all the way back to Florida. In retrospect, I'm like, I didn't ask, I didn't talk to anybody at the program I was at. I didn't ask my parents about money to, uh, go, you know, be with my grandmother. But I think in my head, I was like, you know, this is what she would want me to do. Like, I don't, I don't know what she would have wanted me to do, but she passed away and it worked out that I was able to go and be with family for her, her homegoing ceremony. But that's something yeah. that, you know, I've always looked back on like, did I make the right decision? Uh, Cause you know, life continues to move on and we miss out on so much because of what we've chosen to do as a profession. And then, you know, I think yeah. at some point we need to start looking and saying, you know, these are the priorities and these are the situations that I want to be there for. And definitely something I still struggle with to this day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that about your grandma. Yeah, but thank you so much for for sharing such just a moving personal story about your connection with osteosarcoma. And it makes so much sense. I think you're perfect to be in this field and to affect change and to talk with the patients you see every day. So thank you so much for taking on this burden. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure he's looking down and so proud of the position you've come to be and the incredible change you're making in the film. Gosh. So along the way, or the reason that I found you on Instagram is because mm-hmm. you still have this passion for dance. Since you were okay. a kid, you danced and I guess it's your, what does dancing do for you? Cause I imagine in the hospital you deal with some happy cases, some, a lot of sad, I'm, I'm assuming, just because of yeah. kids yeah. with cancer. So is dancing provide kind of a relief from from that or, or what, what does it do for you? It, it definitely does. I think like growing up, dance was just always fun for me. And I, I, I just liked to do it. So I did it a lot. And as I've gotten older and the more difficult the life has gotten, dance has has definitely turned into more of an escape. 
I have days where I literally just dance all day and I don't do anything else. And I feel bad afterwards because I'm like, I wasted so much time. I could have gotten this done, I could have gotten this paper done. But at the end of the day, it usually is what I, I need to like rejuvenate myself in my mind. Like you said, it's, it's hard. Like the, the patients, our patients die a lot, unfortunately. And so, and they're kids. So, I mean, it, it definitely is a difficult field and something hard to do every single day. And I think, I mean, it probably weighs on me more than I think it does, but I, every day is triggering for me just because of what my, I watched my brother go through. Hmm. So I think it, it's, it's hard to explain. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy not doing it. I would feel more separated from my brother if I wasn't in this field, even though I know he's always with me, but like actually working in the field provides this special bond to him that I I don't want to lose. But then at the same time, it is very, very triggering, especially having to have conversations with families that doctors had with our family about, Mm. about Lewis. And so I I think it's, it's strange. It's good for me and it's bad for me, but I dance is that, that one thing that I can do to kind of just take it all away. And I don't really think about anything else while I'm dancing. So it's, it's a good stress reliever and it's also good exercise. So there's a, it's a win-win. <laughs> win Now, because I know a lot of us, we dance in the comfort privacy of our home in front of mirrors. <laughs> My wife will catch me on occasion, but you have the confidence to put your dance out for the world. It seems like, like, how do you make that, that jump? Like how, are you worried about what people think and say? Cause like, I know I, I put my music out and like seven people like the songs that I do, but I'm hiding behind like a keyboard <laughs> instrument, but you're just out there. Like I want that confidence. How, how do you do it? I, I, look at, I think because it's just fun for me. And I think some like me watching other people dance makes me happy. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm enjoying myself. Maybe this will make someone else happy. I, and then, I mean, I shouldn't have, but I found TikTok during COVID. Like when it was 2020 <laughs> is when I started TikTok. And then I'm like, wow. And I could possibly, you know, if I can get enough people to be happy and want to watch these, I could possibly make money off of this. So I was like, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to post videos every once in a while. And then I actually became slightly addicted. So now it's like my poster about dancing now, but it's what I was doing before TikTok, but now it's just getting recorded and posted yeah. on the internet. But so, because I'm so far removed from dance TikTok, because the dances that you do, so you find the choreography on TikTok and then you like learn it. Is that yeah. how it? Yeah. So I come across a video just by scrolling and I'm like, oh, I like that choreography. So then I, I just learn it from the video. So you just watch the video again and again and again, like mm-hmm. while you pick up each. Fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's funny on the other side, my wife and I will be out like, driving and then I hear a song that I want to do a cover to mm-hmm. and then she always like knows because that song just plays on repeat again and again until she hates it she's like oh gosh <laughs> can't wait till you're done so yeah you just sit there you watch the video and you I'm so uncoordinated we just had a dance for our uh, wedding reception and we had a dance instructor oh my gosh it was like <laughs> wedding counseling because <laughs> towards the end like the first you know the first like two times you run through the song was like oh it's great and then i'm like oh gosh we have another hour to go and then the the teacher's like again again and then we're like you did this wrong i'm like no you gotta follow my lead so we it was a very 
much a learning experience for the both of us. And yeah. so kudos to you. Apparently it comes naturally. It's your, that's your talent. That's your thing. And you do it so beautifully and you share your gift with everyone else that's on social media. So thank you for that. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Gosh, as we start to wrap up, I do have this question because I, I want so much to provide representation and encouragement for folks that you know are, are starting their medical journey and don't know what they could potentially become. So what would you say to that medical student that's considering pediatrics and how would you sell them on the field of hematology oncology? So I would say pediatrics is the most rewarding field of medicine that you can go into. I think even just general pediatrics, very influential in a kid's life. I mean, that's the beginning of their healthcare. That's the first interaction they're going to have with the healthcare system is with their pediatrician. And so there's so much that you can do and so much responsibility you have as a pediatric doctor to make sure that you can set up a child as best as you can to have a successful future as, as an adult. We don't get you know, as much recognition as we should for what we do. But pediatrics is, it's, I find it to be kind of the the cornerstone of medicine. And usually if if a child has a great pediatrician, has a a great family that also supports them as well, they're, the transition into adulthood, I feel is much, much easier health-wise, mental and physical. Pediatric oncology, hematology oncology specifically, I think it takes, it's hard. And I'm not even going to sugarcoat that. It, It is difficult to watch children die and they will die often. And what we are working on, especially at big centers like St. Jude is we're working on decreasing that. We, we want to see a hundred percent cure rate for mm. all of the cancers. That's a big, a big goal, but it's, it's what we're working towards. And it's something that we're going to keep working towards until, until we're all gone. So I think it's, it's a very rewarding field again, but it, it's, it's hard mentally, emotionally, and all of the ways that you can think of. But the kids that do do well are the ones that are going to keep pushing you to go because you know that it can happen. If it can happen for that one kid, it can happen for another kid. And so it, it's something that keeps you motivated and moving forward. And there's always more to learn. There's always new things coming out with pediatric um, oncology and oncology in general. So it's a field that you'll never get bored in for sure. And if you're interested in it, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone offline or about the field, about pediatrics just in general, or about the subspecialty of oncology. So I'm, I'm always happy to go on and on about it. So feel free to reach out to me. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing with us your passion for kids, for kids with cancer, for dance, and the, the very moving inspiration that has kind of guided you down this path. If you want to follow her online, check out her Instagram. Her fantastic dance moves is Dr. Underscore Jazz, J-A-S, how it's spelled. We'll put a, a link to her LinkedIn as well if you have any follow-up questions. Uh, thank you so much for doing what you're doing for our kids and for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much again for having me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you reaching out. Awesome. You're welcome back anytime. We're here on the Black Daughters podcast. Tune in next week because uh, representation matters.